Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. So this episode is a bit awkward as I'm interviewing my boss, Rob Leclerc, <laughs> the founding partner of AgFunder. So hey there, boss. How are you doing today? Good, Louisa. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. I'm here in the WeWork Food Labs in New York. Uh, you're in San Francisco where you live with your wife and two kids. So did you have time to have breakfast today? No, actually, I've been trying to engage in intermittent fasting. Um, it's something I sort of always have done, um, incidentally, and uh, there seems to be a whole new movement uh, around it about you know, part of a healthy diet. So it's something I've sort of continued on and doubled down on. So I try to avoid it whenever possible, but sometimes in the afternoon, I get these massive hunger cravings and then go and have a donut. So maybe I destroy all of that. <laughs> and what, what counts as fasting then? Is it a certain number of hours? Yeah. So you try to basically um, limit your food consumption to say a 10 hour or an eight hour or six hour period. Um, and the theory there is that you kind of go from um, basically burning sugar to, to, to burning fat um, and so if you, and as soon as you eat, you start to kind of go into sort of burning sugar. So, um, so you want to kind of move this so that you're, you're met- metabolizing fat for as long as possible. So how would you describe your food preferences then? So you're doing some fasting, you're eating donuts. What else do you like? <laughs> uh, somewhat experimental, uh, certainly, um, I love sushi. My wife was uh, recently pregnant we now have a, a new six week old baby. So I didn't get to have as much sushi as I like. I've been been really trying to dig into the alternative protein space, Uh, have really enjoyed oat milk, uh, of all things. So So getting into more serious things, it's, uh, you know, it's 2020s coming up. We're thinking about the last decade. AgFunder has been going since 2013. But you've been in and around agriculture um, for about the last 10 years. So what, you know, what would you say have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen to the ag industry in that time? God, yeah. So I, I think it's kind of important to frame this in sort of a larger context, right? So, you know, 10 years ago, you know, we were going 19, or 2009 into 2010. Uh, we didn't have modern AI. Uh, cloud computing was still in, in, in its infancy. Uh, and, you know, wh- why was network speeds were slow? Uh, the iPhone was still an emerging platform, um, and there was very kind of little professionalization of entrepreneurship and venture capital, at least relative to today. Um, and so it was a very nascent industry. Um, you know, in, when I joined and met Michael in 2010, we were setting up um, in, uh, production agriculture projects in West Africa, Burkina Faso and Mali. And I remember uh, we were looking into how could we use remote sensing to better kind of manage and operate um, uh, these uh, the, the land we were working with in those countries. And trying to even just get basic satellite imagery was a super expensive, kind of largely an analog process. You kind of submitted these requests. Um, and so, you know, you think about just how much has changed in the last 10 years. The infrastructure of technology today just allows us to do so many more things. Um, and so, you know, with, you know, with the context of sort of the broader um, trends in technology, right, we were sort of at the, 
the tail end of this installation phase of technology. Um, and now we're really starting to become enter this deployment uh, de deployment phase where where technology is rapidly um, diffusing and perfusing through all of these other industries. And, and you know, Mark Andreessen uh, in 2011 talked about this with this idea of software is eating the world, right? And this was this idea that that we are entering this deployment phase where technology, every company will become a technology company. And we're seeing that um, in the food and ag space. And, and now technology is entering this space in a way that, that you know, people didn't even think about um, you know, 10 years ago. And so, you know, 10 years ago, I remember when we, when we started, or even seven years ago, when we started AgFunder, uh, we're talking to venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and media about the opportunities and potential for um, food technology and agriculture technology to, to make transformations in our food system. Um, an agriculture system, well, a, most people just sort of eyes rolled back. They just saw food and agriculture as this super unsexy, uninteresting um, space, you know, and the flavors of the day were Facebook and Uber and Airbnb and, and in many ways still are, uh, but there's room for the uh, for, for food and agriculture in this conversation. I think it's just becoming a, an increasingly important part of the zygus, particularly as it relates to, you know, the environment, climate, um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and health. And, and people are looking at these things and recognizing how closely these agriculture is tied to these big concerns um, that we have. And so if we had some of the technologies that we have today, 10 years ago when you were um, working at Seed Rock with Michael, do you think that that business would have been quite different or the success of that business? Well, I think we're still, yeah, I mean, I, you know, we were, we were taught, we were targeting a pretty hard problem. So, um, we were trying to develop a copy and paste model for agriculture development that would be, you know, sustainable, that could be expanded upon um, on the African continent, because we fundamentally believe that you know, coming in and solving fundamental problems that sit at the bottom of, of Maslow's, Maslow's pyramid, um, that we could make some fundamental changes. You know, Africa, it's, it's a funny place because it, it used to be um, a net producer of food. And, you know, today it's, um, it's a net importer of food. And so the NGOs and a lot of uh, large international organizations um, put pressures on um, Africa to develop in a, in, a, in a way that wasn't really all that beneficial for them. And now, you know, basically you have this tax on, on food. And so solving that doesn't actually need a lot of technology. It could have helped us, um, but there's basic infrastructure that needs to be deployed. Um, there's capital professionalization. Um, these are all, this is all sort of low hanging fruit that we could bring to bear. Now we could operate better, we could scale it better, uh, but but I think fundamentally there is just more fundamental needs that and lower hanging fruit that that could be could be picked. What trends have emerged in the last seven years or ten years in in food and agriculture that have excited you the most? Yeah, so you know, and, and this comes back to I think you know the emergence of certain technologies that enabled us to do agriculture and food in a different way, right? So you know, first I think this idea of artificial intelligence and, and automation has opened this opportunity to really think, rethink agriculture, agriculture productivity. Going back 10 years ago, there was still a whole bunch of 
really difficult problems in AI that you simple character recognition that couldn't be solved. And you know, agriculture is just such a hard problem. It's it's like manufacturing, but we have phenotypic variants, genetic variants, environmental variants. Um, you can imagine, for instance, you know, if if I'm making an iPhone, uh, imagine I've got a bad part, but that part by being bad, it starts to make other parts bad, or or that part decides to get up and move. Um, or I have to take off the roof of the building and try to operate um, in rain and snow and all of these sort of other environmental factors. So the, the types of technology that we need are a couple orders, three orders of magnitude greater than what we have used traditionally. And so artificial intelligence um, and, and you know, modern robotics it starts to move us in that kind of direction, right? So we can start to to make those tractable, make those really sort of tractable problems. You know, and I think one of the big surprises for me was, uh, for instance, the acquisition of Climate Corp, just how big that was in such a short and early period of time with a billion dollar valuation. And then I think subsequently uh, to that, what was quite surprising to me was, uh, you know, what we're seeing is a bit of a fairly dark period without meaningful acquisitions outside of, uh, say, Blue River and Granular. Um, and I just don't think the traditional, um, you know, ag companies realize how important technology is to their future. And I fundamentally believe that they really don't have a hope of building these types of technologies in-house because it's not fundamental to their DNA. Um, and these types of technologies require a different DNA um, to, to, to be built. So um, I think that's another sort of surprise on, on my end is, is that these companies haven't been more active, more aggressive, um, and have been quite passive. Why do you think that is? You know, they've all made their main digital play for Monsanto having Climate Corp. Bayer's obviously now acquired Monsanto. DuPont has got Granular. Um, they merged with Dow. Syngenta's actually made a few digital acquisitions now, obviously owned by um, ChemChina. You know, what other types of acquisitions could they be making on top of those? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's they see technology as a feature um, rather than a product. And if you think of it as a feature, then you kind of go out and buy one thing and you kind of kind of glue it on and say, OK, yes, we've, we've, we have uh, technology. I, I believe that over the next decade or two, um, that every company needs to be a technology company. And um, the work you put in today to transform yourself as a technology company um, is what pays dividends on that you know, 5, 10, 15, and 20 year timescale. So I just don't think that they um, recognize th- how technology can affect their businesses in the long term, right? So they, they, they look at it today and they say, look, we don't really see a P&L um, from these technologies because they're looking at it as a kind of, hey, this is this new kind of little feature or product line, rather than thinking about it more holistically that we need to fundamentally be a technology company to operate and survive um, in the future. Now, I guess what's, what's good is that it's, there's a bit of a tragedy here because nobody is making those steps. Um, but I think as, as, as people really start to push on that, and, and perhaps Monsanto was really the best at this, that as, as they start to push on this, they will start to see that distancing. It takes a long time to build software that's great and magical in the same types of way that we see 
in the consumer world today. So, you know, to see to try to bring that in house and expect immediate results is is going to be a bit of a failure. Uh, but thinking about a long term strategy of how do we transform ourselves into technology companies is going to be fundamentally important. Yeah, I mean, those is really interesting news. And one of the company I missed out in my list just then was BASF. Uh, and they have obviously acquired the Zavio platform from from Bayer out of that um, merger. But they um, recently announced that cost sharing with farmers is going to be a key part of their, um, well, potentially a key part. They're trialing it. But I think it sounds like it would be in Bayer has also indicated about cost sharing with farmers using the data that they're collecting from these tools on the farm. And they're starting to partner with other groups like Arable, a sensing company. So do you think that they're making those kind of acquisitions instead of partnering with some of those startups that are providing the ground truth data to feed their overall digital software platforms? Could those be the kind of acquisitions they should be making? Or is it technology that we haven't, we're not even thinking about yet? I think, I think, Partnerships are are great. Uh, I, in just my communications and discussions with a lot of the people who head up these sort of digital groups, uh, they they get light buy-in from the C-level suite, right? So they kind of get a, a a direction from from the C-suite that says, "Hey, let's let's start looking at this." Um, but they are not completely empowered to. I don't think do all of the things that they want to do. And, and it's going to be hard for them because, again, a lot of these technologies are emerging. A lot of the people in these companies have not seen um, major technology cycles, have not been sort of in companies that have seen how this transforms their business. So I, I just think there's some general hesitation around this. So, you know, I think partnerships are nice. I just would like to see companies these companies think more seriously about technologies and think of themselves as technology companies. And so even, even the ability to acquire smaller companies, which are uh, not as costly as trying to buy, for instance, Farmers Business Network or, or Climate Corp, um, that they could start to make these acquisitions. And we're seeing those acquisitions actually by these other large startups. They are, they, they, I think they get it in a way that the, the big companies don't. Okay, so let's move on to food trends, and I want to do a lightning round with you um, on some of these. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. So starting with hot or not, CBD. Not. Plant-based meat or cultivated meat? Oh, well, we just launched a, <laughs> a new fund, so I have to say I have to say hot. I mean, uh, do you both. want, do you want I explanation you to explanation or just hot or not? I wanted you to choose between... One or the other, plant-based oh, or cultivated. Uh, oh, oh, plant-based or, or which? Cultivated meat. Cultivated meat. Why is that? So a lot of plant-based solutions just don't have the IP and moat around them to attract significant investment. Ultimately, if you can start to, to work with the genetics, you've got a lot more degrees of freedom to create the products that can compete or out-compete traditional animal products. So... From that perspective, I think the world is pretty open-ended. However, in general, I do think that both plants and fermentation can be a platform or are a new platform that will effectively replace animals as bioreactors for uh, those products. Insect ice cream, hot or not? Not. Why not? You know, uh, we've seen a lot of insect protein companies, and I'm just not convinced that there's much market pull-through on the side of the consumer. I think there's lots of ways that we can uh, find protein and getting them from insects is probably not on people's priority list. It has too much yuck factor to it. Meal kits, 
hot or not? I think you've used a few in the past, actually, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we're we're sort of religious users of meal kits. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of time compression in the lives of, of professionals. And at the same time, people are concerned about uh, their health. They don't want to package food. And so uh, what's the way that what, what's what satisfies you um, give and gives you that convenience and does it at a, at a, at a cost level that's that is competitive with what you would do at the grocery store and factoring in all the costs around shopping and cleanup and, and these other things so you can spend time with your family. And so um, I believe that the meal, I really like the meal kit market. I think you have to optimize on um, flavor and speed. So if it takes you 45 minutes and it doesn't taste good, um, or if that, then you're going to have a, you're going to have a challenge business model. Um, so we are now pretty avid, uh, fans of Gobble, which I think have uh, focused very squarely on those two um, those two dimensions and have really executed well. Moringa or spirulina? Jeez, uh, that's a good one. Uh, can I have a no comment on that? <laughs> Why is that? Uh, um, I, I think I, I, I think I'm probably not uh, super informed. I'm, I'm very also biased because. Uh, Lisa Curtis is. I'm such a, a Lisa Curtis fan, and she, you know, she was. She's been championing moringa, and so I, I don't think I know enough about the benefits of spirulina. Um, and I'm such a Lisa Curtis fan. I don't think I can, in an unbiased way, talk about moringa. So, <laughs> so if anything, I guess I would say moringa. moringa. Okay, and Lisa Curtis is the founder of Coolie Coolie Foods. Okay, so thinking yeah. about these these food trends and food tech. Uh, technologies that have been coming out, what are you most excited about? And maybe we'll leave the alternative protein out for a little bit just because we've talked about that and we obviously have a fund out, so we obviously find that very exciting. Sure. Um, you know, so I think one of the one of the major food trends, this is something that Chuck Templeton, uh, one of the partners at S2G, said to me, framed really nicely when we were discussing our investment in, in Brightseed. And, and they, their thought is that in 10 years from now, you know, right now we look at the front of the label and, and say, okay, it's craft or um, it comes from this brand. But that in 10 years from now, we're going to turn around the label and look at the functional properties of these food. Like, what does this food do for me? And I had this great epiphany. Um, my wife's uh, Chinese American and I spent a lot of time with her family. And I went over for dinner one time and I have a great relationship with, with her mom. And uh, she made bitter melon. And she, she, she serves me some bitter melon and I taste it and, I, and she says, what do you think? And I said, oh God, it's horrible. Uh, and, and, I, and I said, do you like it? And she says, no. And I said, well, why do you, why do you like it? Or why, why do you make it? And she says, it's good for you. And I, I had this uh, kind of this epiphany moment, this real appreciation for how Chinese culture looks at food, right? How you eat certain foods because of the health benefits. And in the Western, in Western society, at least for the last 50, 60 years, we've optimized around convenience and, and hedonic properties. Um, and so I believe that there's this sort of this shifting trend to something much more akin to um, maybe a kind of a traditional Chinese perspective on food as food is medicine. And so I think we have a lot, a long way to go to sort of tease that out. But I, I, I think we're really focused there's kind of a movement to focus on the health benefits of food. And you see this in the alternative protein space where there's been, where, where, where the backlash has been around, is this really healthy for us? Are we just creating um, you know, margarine 2.0? So 
Um, I, I think food companies in general, the alternative protein companies as well, need to start really having a strategy around health because you know, with all of this technology, it's like, well, it's not just about quantity and calories. We're, we're starting, we're, we're learning more and more about food every day. So how can we actually make food that's better for us? So AgFunder has now invested in 30 companies, is it, across the, our VC funds and our Grow Accelerator? Yeah, actually it's uh, 31, but we've got um, probably four or five that are, that are unannounced right now. In stealth mode. Okay. How would you describe how we've constructed our portfolio and are there any areas that you know we're missing that we're actually looking for deals in yeah so i I think in general we're pretty opportunistic you one of the the low pass filter for us um, is exceptional founders and you know if you really work backwards from the outcome right and successful outcomes you you what what is a what is an exceptional company exceptional companies tend to be founded by exceptional founders and a lot of vcs will, will will pat themselves on the back and give themselves a lot of credit. But I think it's really in practice, really difficult to, to, to manage from the level of the board or, or, or as a VC. Um, you know, so I'm of the camp that when you invest in a company, if it's an exceptional team and, and market and product, that that's sort of what carries that forward. And, and our role as venture capitalists are to come in and try to support, um, support those companies and, help them move faster where we can, um, give them some, let them see the fast lanes because they're, they're kind of in a, in a micro world. So for us, I think we have a very strong bar on, on really finding exceptional founders. And, and that really gives us sort of the, the most optionality to have these sort of exceptional outcomes. Where we've invested heavily um, is certainly around artificial intelligence, um, you know, across the food and agriculture uh, value chain. Uh, so that is that is sort of a deep theme um, around process automation, around how agriculture will be done um, in the future, and also recognizing that this sits outside of the core competency of the big um, food and agriculture companies. And if it is something that's within their core competency, they've already had you know billions of dollars to throw at these problems. How are we going to compete, um, you know, with a few million dollars into a startup? So we want to solve problems that are um, that 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 haven't maybe are are unsolvable with the existing tools or using new technologies that 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 the, the incumbents have no experience with or very little experience with, and bringing those technologies to this industry. Um, so we've been very opportunistic from that from that perspective, um, and I think you know we like to see not sort of incremental change. I think usually. Most of the companies that we're investing in, uh, we kind of invest in a kind of an N of one market, meaning there's there's only one of those companies um, in that market. So we really like that uniqueness of, of a company. Um, so pair of exceptional founders with uniqueness gives us some room to kind of explore and run. Um, if we're investing in a company where there's you know, half a dozen of companies, really hard to differentiate. Um, that's that's sort of that's sort of challenging um, for us. Um, you know, I think we we are pretty flexible in our investment as well. So you know, we've invested in India, Africa, uh, Brazil, Australia, Europe, uh, the the uh, you know the U.S. Obviously, um, so we we have a much more flexible mandate to go and find those exceptional founders and those exceptional companies anywhere 
um, in the world. And, and that's, uh, that's a function of having kind of a kind of a more flexible LP base. So we've been investing now for um, two years. What would you say have been some of the biggest lessons that you've learned during that time? Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is reinforcement, right? So uh, while we've been investing for, for a couple of years, uh, we've been pretty close to a lot of startups since 2013. So we, we got to sort of the armchair quarterbacks and have hypotheses and see things through. And so, you know, we've we got to sort of learn from the you know mistakes and and also successes of others so from that perspective i think we've you know it's it's been a lot of reinforcement of the theories that we had and are now um, really able to to put that um into practice who is your favorite team member agfunder oh geez i'm i can i can i uh i'm gonna i'm gonna get in, in trouble for for anybody uh, but of course you will yeah, of course <laughs> thank you very much so looking to the next 10 years what are you expecting and hoping to see and maybe what are you hoping to see less of yeah so so you know i think for the next 10 years um so certainly you know, widespread automation of agriculture. This is going to increase productivity, improve traceability, quality. It will help um, in many ways agriculture decommoditize products. It's, this whole digitalization, I think, opens up, um, it, it really opens up the agriculture and, and food market as well and, and really can make strides with, at that point, you can start to make strides with, with, um, with, with climate change and, and the environment. So, so I think this is a fundamental um, a piece of that, you know, and a lot of investors have, I think, prematurely foreclosed on the sector because they they mistook what what was effectively a hard problem and then and then slow progress because it was hard for a fundamental lack of product market fit or or maybe what they saw was a small market. So um, I believe those companies that that you know have gone through those hard years have spent the last four or five years building this full stack of technology and are starting to sort of see that inflection point um, that these can be become big important and significant companies and i think that is going to catch a lot of people um, off guard um, you know a second i think which which i alluded to before is is seeing as this major platform shift from using animals as bioreactors um, to using plants, microbes, and cells, uh, and uh, to 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 access the types of products that we want, and effectively, man, that's a that's a three trillion dollar um, animal animal products market uh, that that is being addressed there. Uh, sustainability, I think, is emerging as this really long term mega trend, and every generation is becoming more and more concerned and biased for action. We see this with with Greta being on the you know. Per, uh, person time of the year. Um, and so this really reframes how we think about food and agriculture. And it's going to be that younger generation that is bringing these ideas into the household. And so even if it, and I think that can sort of stimulate a lot more change as well. Um, you know, the big food brands, they are no longer authentic. And I think they are losing, certainly losing that authenticity and they lose that trust on what was once an asset has become a liability. So they have great capabilities in production and they have these great supply chains, but the brands themselves have become liabilities. Um, and so this leads then to, into kind of another key trend that we're, we're seeing, which is the individualization of consumer preferences, right? And so this is really challenging 
the business model of big food companies who are, you know, are used to basically creating one product, one product line that can be distributed to hundreds and hundreds of millions of consumers. Um, and how do you compete when uh, you have a small indie brand that is able to outcompete you by, by taking some of those calories and, and, and be better able to satisfy a portion of that population, but then a whole, you know, diversity of these types of indie brands. And so I think this is, a, this is really exciting for, and, and will be very transformational to um, our food system, but also very encouraging. Um, and then finally, I guess, you know, as we kind of um, discuss is, you know, what we eat is, uh, is going to play an enormous role in our health, particularly if you've got this, this very large and aging Booming boomer population and, and this that that have a lot of wealth and they're going to focus that wealth on how to solve um, a lot of health problems they have to to prolong their lives and have a greater quality of life and I think that certainly brings greater attention then to 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 the to the food we eat which is great for me because I'm sort of a you know a couple of generations younger than that so um, if we can solve some of these problems or address some of these make some progress over the next ten years. Uh, you, know, um, you know, my generation and younger generations can really, really benefit from that. Are there any deals that you wish you'd invested in? Oh, geez, uh, that's a good question. I mean, there's, you know, as a, as a, we primarily focus on on seed and that's sort of the sweet spot um, that we invest in, right? So um, there are certainly some companies that I, I would have loved to invest in, but we either didn't have our fund up or the or the companies were a little too late. Um, Pivot Bio is doing, you know, just some super amazing things. And I just continue to hear great things about what's coming down in the pipeline for them. Um, uh, Dance here at uh, Abundant Robotics is, you know, they were one of the first really viable um, ag robotics companies. And, and that was, that was a, in, in many ways, in my mind, a template company that, that if that was the bar by which if we were going to make an investment in the company, um, that was going to um, that was going to be one of them. Um, and I think on the on the alternative protein side, uh, there was uh, my my favorite company. I think they're they're doing amazing things. The team is brilliant. Uh, the CEO, you talk to him, and it's like you're talking to a bio PhD. Is a company called Wildtype, um, which is a cellular agriculture company. Um, producing um focus on salmon production and uh it's you know it's just such an exceptional team and they're making a, a great progress uh, that's that's sort of one that you know the fish got away from us as it were well thank you rob that wasn't as okay. awkward as i thought it would be <laughs> my pleasure louisa <laughs> thank you you've been listening to future food with me louisa Burwood taylor for news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries go to agfundernews.com And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.